time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Access to justice and family law continue to be a particularly concerning element of the overall justice system and its capacity to help people resolve disputes. You and I have discussed this in the past. I'm seeing a curious proposal being made, and I'm I'm wondering about your thoughts on it. Paralegals helping folks instead of a lawyer if they are low income. What's happening here? Yeah, I think uh, curious might be the best possible spin on it. Uh, so what, what's going on? And it, it requires a little bit of background. Yeah. Um, and the background to all of this is that uh, back in uh, uh, 92, the uh, NDP, who was in power at the time, imposed a special tax on uh, legal services, which you pay if you hire a lawyer to do anything. Yes. It doesn't apply to any other professional services. And at the time, when they imposed the tax, they said this is going to be used to fund legal aid. Great. Uh, Very shortly, however, it started collecting more money than the government was giving to legal aid. Uh, And then in uh, 2002, uh, the then liberal government uh, decided to cut legal aid by 40 percent, close all the offices that legal aid had across the uh, province, uh, but they kept the tax. Uh, and the 40% cut fell largely for, on services that included um, family law services and what would be called poverty law services. Poverty law things would be like helping somebody who was going to be evicted uh, or perhaps helping somebody make a claim for disability benefits, things like that. All the lawyers who did that work uh, were fired and all the offices were closed. Mm. But the province kept the tax because once the tax comes in, it's pretty unappealing to get rid of it mm. uh, from a government perspective, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and then all the way up till now, in various degrees, that same circumstance has continued. So what's going on in B.C. is we have um, the last uh, FOI request I made about this was 2017. And at that point, that special tax collected uh, more than $210 million. Wow. However, for some comparison, uh, in 2022, and the amount went up every year if you look back at the trend. Yeah. In 2022, the British Columbia government only provided $108 million to uh, Legal Aid B.C. that provides legal aid. And the amount of the tax would have gone up between 2017 and 2022. So the government is essentially spending more than half of this special tax on things other than legal aid. And that's why the system is so dreadfully underfunded. Uh, And it has a particularly negative impact disproportionately on uh, women uh, and Indigenous people, both of whom would disproportionately need help with things like family law issues. Yes. So all of that is very disappointing. The additional background, uh, this is important to know, um, is that in uh, BC, like all across Canada and and in Commonwealth countries around the world, the legal profession is independent of government, right? It's a self-regulating profession. And that's a pretty important thing. It's important for the public uh, because the lawyers are not regulated by the government. And, And that's important because often what lawyers wind up doing is in opposition to what the government wants. Indeed, right? and they need to days, be, yeah. Right. I spend my days often litigating things with the uh, Crown who work for the government, yes. right? opposing what they might be trying to do. And it would be obviously unsatisfactory if I was somehow beholden to the government. You don't want the lawyer who's supposed to be helping you 
to be beholden to the person that you're having a dispute with. That's obviously not fair, right? Yeah. And so uh, the legal profession is a self-regulating profession. So there's an organization called the Law Society that regulates lawyers and determines things like uh, ethical standards and credentials, importantly. Like, does a person have the proper training to be a lawyer to protect the public? Because you can imagine all the damage that would be done if you could have somebody out there being a lawyer who wasn't properly equipped to do that, right? They could cause massive uh, harm to people. And so that brings me to what the government is latest proposal to deal with this uh, uh, terrible underfunding of things like family law services. The government has released this, uh, what they call a general intentions paper hmm. uh, entitled Legal Profession Regulatory Modernization. Yeah. Uh, so, so far so good. It's, a, it's an appealing cover. <laughs> but then when you read what they're talking about here, it becomes really pretty troubling on two fronts. First of all, it's clear from this that what the government has in mind uh, is the idea of rather than properly funding legal aid for things like family law services, yes. they have this idea of creating uh, a group of paralegals who would operate uh, without um, supervision uh, by a lawyer uh, to provide less expensive family law services. So the idea there is rather than funding legal aid so people could hire a family lawyer who was properly trained to do that kind of work, the government's proposal here is to create this category of paralegals specifically for the purpose of dealing with um, family law and other issues like that. Um, and that is a concern. And it's a concern because family law is extremely complicated and getting more so. Like family law these days involves knowledge of uh, tax law and trusts and all kinds of things. And if somebody doesn't know what they're doing, you can cause massive harm to somebody. Um, and, and I must say, maybe that's something that comes with having done this work for a while. Yeah. You know, I've done this for a long time. I've gone to law school. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare try taking on a family law file. They're so complicated. The chance of me blowing that would be exceedingly high, mm -hmm. right? But I think perhaps if you have somebody who doesn't know enough to know, not know what they don't know, right? Um, you could very quickly get into trouble. Yeah. And so this idea of rather than funding family legal aid properly with the tax money that's already being collected, this idea of having paralegals do it for people who are poor is really pretty disturbing. Um, and the government's been at that, trying to propose that in various ways for a few years now. Mm. Uh, and they've got pushback from the, the law society. Uh, and much of that pushback has come out of a concern that people doing that wouldn't be properly qualified to do it, which would be harmful to the public. And then I guess in a, in a self-interested way, um, if you have people who are off there, out there um, committing errors, right, which potentially have big financial implications for people, uh, other members of the law society could be on the hook for that. Insurance rates go up and so on. Yes. And so there is a self-interested element to that as well. There's no doubt. But the, the principal concern is that people doing that wouldn't be properly trained. And so the law society has pushed back on that uh, solution to this problem. And so what the government is proposing here is trying to change the Legal Professions Act to uh, allow the government to have more control over it and require that there be these paralegals to 
do family and other work uh, for people at a lower cost. Hmm. And that's a concern, not only because of the potential harm that could cause having people trying to do that work that aren't properly trained to do it, but it has other really big implications because this proposal the government has is a way to try to force this idea through uh, is to decrease the number of people who are elected by lawyers to sit on as what are called benchers. It's kind mm-hmm. of like the board of directors for the law society. Mm-hmm. Currently, there are 25 of them. Okay. And the government appoints six. And their idea is to reduce that number, perhaps to 15, and increase the number of people that the government can appoint. So the government can control the organization more. To what end? To make this happen. They Just- want control over it because they want to, as a way to provide less expensive family law services, huh. they want to create these paralegals, and they've yeah. had pushback from the law I see. So okay. they want to legislate it and then take greater <laughs> control over the organization to wedge it through. And that's a, a really big concern. I mean, yeah. one concern is the level of having people who may not be qualified doing the work and causing harm, but then the bigger concern that arises from that is having the government trying to muscle control from the independent legal profession has really big concerns for people. Um, And I know it's not something people might think about every day, but it is pretty fundamental to how our system of government operates. The importance of having an independent bar really can't be overstated, uh, because if you have a circumstance where the government can exercise undue control and influence over the legal profession, uh, good luck to you uh, if you wind up in a dispute with the government. You don't want a bunch of people who are beholden to the government being your only option if you're trying to get some help in a dispute with the government. And so what's being proposed here, to my mind, is a pretty dreadful idea, not only because of the potential harm caused by having a group of people who aren't properly trained doing the work, but also because uh, it undermines the independence uh, of the legal profession, which has great impacts for everyone. Uh, And all of this uh, is a function of the fact that the government uh, is continuing to collect this special tax on legal services and wants to continue spending more than half of it on things other than legal aid, which is what it was intended for. Uh, And so if they would simply stop doing that, there would be sufficient funding to provide legal aid for people who need help with family and poverty law and other uh, services and proper help from people who are properly trained to provide it. Uh, and to my mind, that is a much would be a much better and more principled approach than trying to undermine the independence of the legal profession to wedge through a bunch of people who may not be properly trained to do that work for uh, the poor people, while at the same time continuing to divert uh, well in excess of $100 million that was being collected and is being collected that was supposed to help those very people. Uh, And so that's what's being proposed. At this point, it's a general intentions paper, and I should say uh, it's been uh, open for, it's open until next Friday, uh, November the 18th, Uh, for people to uh, go on and fill out a form commenting on whether they think this is a good idea or not. Uh, And uh, if you do more than read the front page of the the title page, which, you know, everyone likes the idea of modernization, right? Uh, 
if you actually look at what's being proposed here and you know that background in terms of British Columbia and legal aid funding and what's going on and what the government's trying to do here, it's really disturbing. And so I hope people do take the time to think about that and provide some feedback. Again, it may not be something that you is top of mind uh, for people every day, uh, but, you know, many of us, you can wind, people can wind up pretty quickly in a position where they legitimately need legal help with an issue that's very important to them, like family law, being able to get child support or spousal support or access to children. Uh, and that is just so critically important that those services be available and be provided by people who are competent to provide them. And this isn't a roadmap uh, to that. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll take a quick break and continue with Legally Speaking right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking. Our next story on the agenda, Michael, judges can impose sentences longer than requested by the Crown when not a joint submission. Set this one up for us. Yeah, the background of this, and we've talked about it before, um, is the Supreme Court of Canada back in 2016 made clear in a case called Anthony Cook that where in a criminal case a person pleads guilty uh, and there is what's referred to as a joint submission, which means the Crown and defense have agreed on what the sentence should be, Uh judges are required to do what both the Crown and defense are asking be imposed unless doing so would be so completely inappropriate that it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, a really high threshold. And the reason uh, judges are required to do that um, is to encourage people to try to resolve cases, agree to plead guilty if they can come to an agreement about what the sentence should be. And if if those kind of agreements were not uh, implemented, people wouldn't plead guilty, right? If it was just sort of, well, the judge can go do whatever they want, um, that wouldn't work. And basically the criminal justice system would come to its knees trying to run trials, right? Mm. That wouldn't function. So that's why we have that principle. But this case dealt with the circumstance of what about where there are different submissions? And it was a BC case where a man pled guilty. It was serious charges, sexual assault, two counts. Um, And the Crown asked the judge to impose a sentence of between four and six years in prison. And defense asked for between three and three and a half years. The judge did neither of those things. And despite facts like the man was indigenous and other mitigating circumstances, um, the judge imposed an eight-year prison sentence. And so the issue then became, is it appropriate for a judge to impose a sentence greater than even what the prosecutor wants imposed? And so that's the issue that went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada found that indeed, yes, judges are permitted to do that. Where there isn't an agreement, a judge can impose whatever sentence they think is appropriate. However, they found that if a judge is going to impose a harsher sentence than even the prosecutor wants imposed, the judge is required uh, to advise the parties of that and allow the parties an opportunity to make further submissions about why they say a different sentence would be an appropriate one. Uh, And in coming to this conclusion, the Supreme Court of Canada again reiterated the desirability of counsel trying to come to a, a joint submission, an agreement on what the sentence should be, in part because of the resources that saves Right. If you have a contested sentencing hearing, that might go on for half a day or more in a complicated case. Right. 
And so the Supreme Court of Canada said, look, fairness requires a judge to tell them, tell the parties if they're going to impose more than what even the prosecutor wants. But the judge is permitted to do that. And the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out that they want to ensure that that incentive for their parties to work hard to come to an agreement be maintained, uh, in part because of the uh, important efficiencies that brings to the system, right? If you can get the parties together to force a resolution uh, and come to a common position, uh, that saves resources and should be encouraged. But those principles don't apply when you have different positions. And so in that case, the judge is free to do what they want with that proviso. So it was an important uh, decision that just came out uh, from the Supreme Court of Canada. And in Port Moody, it says here, a judicial recount for a council position ordered and an outcome reversed. How? What does all this mean? This is really an interesting case, and it's an interesting case particularly in contrast with the case we spoke about a couple of weeks ago where there was an application for a judicial recount for the council election in Senate. Yes. Right? We had an election here where I think it was 11 votes mm-hmm. separating two of the potential candidates and an application for a recount where the judge in Victoria said no uh, and relied uh, in part on uh, the municipal bylaw that said a valid vote is a vote that can be counted by the machine, right? Yeah. And so this case from Port Moody was similar in the sense that in Port Moody, they also had an automated vote counting machine and also had similar legislation. However, in this case, the initial count of the votes was very close. The initial count was... 3,596 for one candidate, 3,594 for another candidate, two-vote separation. Uh, And so uh, initially the uh, electoral officer for Port Moody tried running the uh, votes through the machines again, right, in a couple of the polls, Mm -hmm. and lo and behold, it came out with a different result. Oh, no. (laughs) On the second run-through, the machines concluded one less vote for each of them, but still a two-vote difference. And so that's what was before the judge. And so the judge looked at them and said, okay, well, uh, you know, uh, yes, I appreciate that the legislation here says that a valid vote is a vote that can be counted by the machine. (laughs) But when we've run at least some of the ballots through the machine again, it came to a different result. So that's not really satisfactory. No. Uh, And so did order a judicial recount. And so the judicial recount appears to have sort of gone in stages. Uh, the, and I should say the, the judicial recount was a limited one in the sense that the judge ordered a judicial recount for the votes that were fed through the machines that came to different results when used twice, right? Mm-hmm. He said, well, that's some evidence that they may not be accurately counting up these votes because they're coming to different conclusions. And the judge said, well, I don't have any such evidence with respect to other machines, but with respect to these ones, we're going to try it again. And so they tried it again. Uh, and indeed, further problems developed. Oh, no. When they did this, six of the ballots had problems. The machine had problems reading them. Hmm. And so now what? Because you're faced with this legislation that says a valid vote is a vote with a mark that can be counted by the machine, but the machine comes to different conclusions. And on this effort, feeding them in again, it identified six ballots where it couldn't read them properly. So now what? <laughs> it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. this is getting less clear, not more clear. That's a problem. Correct. And, and I must say, it should give us all pause when we just sort of want to presume that the machine is infallible and it must be correct because, you know, this is pretty compelling evidence that it's, it's at least inconsistent. And so the judge ordered them that, okay, these six ballots, which the machine couldn't, had problems reading, 
should be manually inspected to try to determine the intention of the voter. And there's case law for that. The really the purpose of this whole thing should be ultimately trying to figure out what does the person want? Who do they want to vote for? Yeah. Uh, and the machine is like calibrated to try to figure out one of those little circles you fill in. Like, have you filled out enough of that circle? But people do funny things. They, they might put an X through it rather than coloring it all in, or yeah. they put a tick mark. And so some of them are going to be on the margin of whether the machine can read that thing or not. Uh, and so when they looked at these six ballots, human beings looked at the six ballots, um, everyone could agree uh, with respect to who they intended to vote for, right? The machine had trouble, but everyone agreed. The lawyers from both sides agreed. The judge agreed. We could tell who these people wanted to vote for. You could look at the X, and yes, maybe that's 16 or 17% of the circles filled in, but it's pretty clear who you've X'd off there, right? Now, there were some other ballots which had other problems. One was where people did what's called an overvote, where, you know, like, let's say you had seven counselors, but you've put eight marks down. Oh. <laughs> those those are rejected because yeah. it's just, well, how could I tell which of these six or seven people you wanted to vote for? You've marked eight people down. But by having human beings look at the ballots that the machine was having trouble with, and I should say there's also some evidence that the machine might have difficulty depending how the ballots were fed into it. Oh. Maybe like slightly at an angle or something. Oh, a little no. less clear. Oh, but it's no. perfect. So human beings look at it. Everyone yep. agrees on these ones. And so the result of that is a tie. Oh. Both candidates received exactly the same number of votes. 3,597. Oh. oh, no. So the, that's contemplated by the Local Government Act. And so their names were put on slips of paper, and there was a draw, and the candidate who was behind by two votes won. <laughs> and so the result of it ultimately was a lottery. Oh. Uh, but, you know, sort of the will of the people there, to the best we can determine it, was uh, respected. So I must say it was a heartening process reading it. And then at the end of it, the judge had to then deal with the issue of cost. Which oh, Yeah. Because usually costs would go to the person who's successful on a application, and the person who's unsuccessful would have to pay for them, right? But here, everyone agreed, and the judge agreed, it's not fair to the person who lost ultimately by a draw to have that person pay the costs of the person who won, right? Even though that was the outcome of the legal proceeding, right? Yes, the two votes changed, and, right? That person lost. The judge concluded, no, that wouldn't be fair. And so each of the candidates had to pay their own fees for that, uh, and that was the result. We had a uh, change based on a state of affairs that was really not too dissimilar from what we had in Saanich here, uh, but a different analysis because the evidence was different in the form of the um, election officer there trying out the machine and coming to a different result when they tried just feeding them through again. And the other nice thing to read, I should say, was the judge praising the good work uh, of the uh, election staff uh, in their fair and professional and, and devotion to duty doing this, which is a lovely contrast to the kind of uh, furor you hear in the U.S. with people blaming uh, each other for cheating and so on. Uh, so a good Canadian story, ultimately sorted out by a lottery. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX. Thank you, as always. We'll talk to you next week. Always a pleasure. Have a great day.